Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. How many of you really love a good story? Can I see your hand? Well, you know, every good story that satisfies our hearts, it leads up to six words in the end. Now, I'm talking about good stories. I'm talking about the kind that when you watch, it gives you all those warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart. It all leads up to those six final words in the end. Maybe it says it, maybe it doesn't say it. And they lived happily ever after. See, it's, it's good to be in the middle of a story and, and being gripped into a story. To, you may have experienced a story where there's been many grueling twists and turns. There may have been moments in the story where uh, it, you wonder if you're going to find the climax and the climax is going to conclude where you have this happily ever after. And then you wonder, but suddenly there's a moment that comes in the story. And in the middle of that moment, everything from that moment begins to twist. Everything from that moment begins to turn. And everything else, the darkness of the story lifts and you begin to see everything turn towards the ending that we're all hoping for. The happily ever after. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone's writing a story of my life, I would love for them to say at the end of my life, and he lived happily ever after. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to have that uh, ascribed at the end of your life, and he and she and they lived happily ever after? Why is that? Why is it that every one of us are all desiring something good to come as a result of our life or to come from our life. Why is it that we all desire something good? Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, some of you know who that is. He's the guy who wrote arguably one of the most epic stories of our time. He wrote a book, uh, three of them, really four or five really, but they're called The Lord of the Rings. Now for those of you who've seen the movie or those of you who know anything about the book Tolkien, he ends his work with most of the heroes literally riding off into the sunset and they go to this place called the Undying Lands. So that's the end of The Lord of the Rings. If, if you haven't seen the movie, hadn't seen, I'm sorry, I spoiled it for you, hadn't read the book, sorry, that's what happens in the end. But a few years later, Tolkien picks up his pen and he begins to write a sequel to The Lord of the Rings. And he found himself quickly desiring to stop because he had found the idea of writing something after the happily ever after too depressing. So he quit. He quit writing the story because he figured out that there's no way to follow up happily ever after. I mean, gosh, that's what it said. Right? How do you follow up happily ever after? You don't want an and. You don't want a but. You don't want a semicolon. You want an exclamation point, And they lived happily ever after. Because you and I know something this morning. You and I know that the greatest hope comes in the end. The greatest hope comes in the end. So what's today? Today is Palm Sunday. Today is a day of great anticipation as we are looking ahead. Understand this, from this moment, we are looking ahead into the most significant week in history. Holy Week. 
This is the week that the whole history of the earth has been leading us to this moment where Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would, would come to take our sorrows and make them His very own. Where this Jesus would come to bear our burden on Mount Calvary and suffer and die alone. And I hope you see how significant this week is, how significant this moment is where Jesus is, is in this time Nearly 2,000 years ago, on this day, Jesus, with all pomp and circumstance, comes riding into a city. And by the end of the week, He will be crucified and buried in a tomb. And the next time that you and I gather, the next time that we come together, after we have passed through the valley of the shadow of death, we will come again together as a church and celebrate Jesus who died for our sins, who was raised so that He could raise us back to life. So, here we are. This is the last week of Jesus on earth. Here we are at the end of the life of Jesus. And listen carefully. The greatest hope is still yet to come. Here we have an end that's filled with hope. And the beautiful truth that is the claim of Christianity is that even in the face of what may be as grim and gruesome as death, Christianity can look at the face of death because a sinless Savior died who has, by the way, since His death has meant that our sinful souls have been counted free. Now He has made us one with Himself so that we, even though we die, yet shall we live. And so now we as Christians, because our Christ has come, our Christ has conquered, we then get to look in the face of the end and see death and say that death is not the end and there is a great hope that comes for all of us who hope in Jesus. And so I want us today to explore this theme of hope in the end in light of what happened 2,000 years ago, in light of our day, in light of what happened at Palm Sunday. And to do so, I want us to go to two passages of Scripture. Now, you've heard one of them read already. Take your Bible this morning. Hopefully you have one. And I really want you to, to have something in your hand. I don't care how you get the Bible, if it's on an iPad, iPhone, Android, if it's got a battery, if it's got a binding, whatever you got, just turn to two passages of Scripture. Turn to John chapter 12, which is what we just heard read earlier by Miss Dawn. Thank you very much for reading that. You did it beautifully, by the way. We're going to read that passage again. And then also, I want you to hold your place there and flip all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Flip to Genesis chapter 49. And literally today, just so that we're all ready and prepared, we're going to go all the way from the beginning to the end of the Bible today. Now, we're not going to physically do it because I'm going to do it for you, but I hope that you're paying attention as we're going through the sermon today. Hopefully you'll hear Genesis. Hopefully you'll hear Revelation proclaimed as we look at John chapter 12 as well as Genesis chapter 49. And what I want us to do, I want us to turn back to John, read it again, and then I want us to go to Genesis 49 to read the beginning of the Bible. And as we're going to see, as we look to the beginning of the Bible, we're going to see how one man who's coming to the end of his life, 
Here he is in the end, and in the end, this man, Jacob, has the greatest hope. And I pray to our Lord that you'll be able to make this connection. And that's my goal. So you'll have to judge whether or not we meet the goal today. You'll have to judge whether or not it makes sense, and hopefully that it will. But I want to show you what John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry has to do with Genesis 49. So let's read the Bible. Let's begin in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Continued, literally, to be martyrs. Continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Now listen to the last verse. Listen. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world, the world, has gone after him. Now, take your Bible and turn back to Genesis chapter 49. And you can lose the place in John because we're going to camp out right here in Genesis 49 for the remainder of our time. Look beginning in verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to Him, and to Him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Binding His foal to the vine and His donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed His garments in wine and His vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and His teeth whiter than milk. Pray with me today. Our Father, be with us today as we look at the events surrounding this day and indeed see that our greatest hope comes in the end. And indeed see, Lord God, that Jesus was always the plan and the purpose of You. We love you. Teach us from your word in the power of your spirit to magnify the Son, 
to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we need to do our diligence as the people of God to figure out what hope Jesus brought when he came humbly riding on a donkey. What in the world was Jesus doing? As we read in Matthew, as we read in Mark, as we can read in Luke, as we can read in John, what was Jesus doing when he was riding this donkey into the streets of Jerusalem? And you have, as our children demonstrated earlier in the service, you have the crowd shouting Hosanna, laying down palm branches and their coats and all the rest as Jesus comes riding. What on earth is going on? And what kind of hope is this Jesus bringing? And what I want to do today to answer that question is I want us to take our clues from Genesis 49 so that we can find out. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happening in Genesis. We come to this point in Genesis. How many chapters are in Genesis? There's 50. So we're at chapter 49. We're right at the end of the narrative of the patriarchs. We're right at the very end. And so in Genesis, we come to the end of the life of Jacob. And at the end of the life of Jacob, what does he do? He does what every good Hebrew does. He blesses his children. This is so fun. There's one child that receives the blessing. Really, he receives the blessing. You can just look at the space that old Judah gets. Judah gets 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Look at old Zebulon below him. How much does he get? He gets a few lines. So the one child that we can see that gets the preeminent blessing. And it's Judah. And there are clues in the blessing of Judah that relate to the life of Jesus. And so from Genesis 49, I want us to look at just a few truths to highlight the hope that Jesus brought when He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Number one, from Genesis 49, Jesus is our hope realized. Let's say this before we dive in. It's one thing to dream of hope. It's another thing for you to experience hope. It's one thing for you to be hopeful. It's another thing for you to realize everything that you've hoped for. And listen to me carefully. Jesus is the way that we experience everything that we hope for. Look at the phrase in verse 8. Look at what it says in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now this is amazing. Amazing. Because usually... The firstborn son is the one who receives a blessing. And we who know something about uh, our Bibles, we who know the story, we know, or if we've ever gone to Broadway and seen a show, we know that there was one son that Jacob really liked. He's a guy who had the coat of many colors, right? It was Joseph. But not even he receives the blessing. So here we have this unusual thing. Judah is the one who stands up from the rest of his brothers Usually, the firstborn receives the blessing, but this is not the case. Now, how many sons did Jacob have? He had a total of 12. Do you remember? Who were they? They were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. See, Judah's number four. Then Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ishakar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And one of those was his favorite. And it wasn't Judah. It was Joseph. But Judah is the one in the text. In the providence of God, Judah is the one who receives the greatest blessing from Jacob. 
maybe this is the first time that we've come to this passage, and maybe it's the first time that you've connected the dots. Why is Judah? It should, it's really meant to leave us scratching our heads and say, okay, well, this doesn't match with any of the culture. What on earth? Why is Judah receiving the blessing? Look at the language of verses 8 and 10. Look at what it says. Verses 8 and 10. Your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons, in verse 8, shall bow down before you. Does that remind you of anything? That's interesting because you remember there was this favorite son name was Joseph. And the last time he had a dream about his brothers bowing down to him, well, he got thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And a matter of fact, if we were to do our diligence today, we'd look back in chapter 37 when Joseph comes to Jacob and says that my brothers are going to bow down to me. Jacob says, what do you mean? You mean to tell me that son, I and your mother and your brothers, we're going to bow down to you? But here, at the end of his life, Jacob has no problem saying that his brothers are going to bow down, not to Joseph, but to Judah. Look what else it says in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, what's a scepter? A scepter is something that a king holds. It's not a shepherd's staff. A scepter is a rod that a king holds in, with the intentions of ruling. But look at what it says. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. What does this mean? This means that he's going to have children who are going to be kings. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's plural. And I'll mention that in just a moment. But of all the children that Jacob has, Judah is the one who stands out as the preeminent son. Now what's Jacob doing? Here Jacob is, he is facing death. But in the face of death, what's he doing? He's blessing his sons. And in the face of death, he is having his hope beyond his death. His hope beyond his years. And even as he is facing death, he's having this hope of a bright future that will come to the earth. And the way that the hope comes to the earth is through his own family. And where in the world did uh, Jacob gets such an idea. The idea, if we're reading our Bible, comes all the way from the beginning where God promised that there would be this son who would come from the seed of a woman who would crush the head of evil. It comes from a promise to his grandfather Abraham where God said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by his children. And so here we see one son of Jacob fulfilling the promise for the whole earth and not just for the whole earth at one time, but for the whole earth for all time. But this son of Jacob who would fulfill this hope was not to be Judah. I hope you understand that. It wasn't to be Judah. It was to be one who came from Look at verse 10. We're going to do a little bit of textual work here. Just pay attention. Verse 10. The ESV reads in verse 10, until tribute comes to him. That's what I have in my Bible. But I agree with the NIV over the ESV here. Here's the reason. If we said this word in Hebrew, Shiloh. Try that. Everyone say it. Shiloh. Say it again. Shiloh. Now, if we knew Hebrew, then it would sound like something else. This is called revocalization. When we say something, it sounds like something different. 
So when we revocalize this word, it sounds like something different. If you have an NIV out there today, it captures the meaning of the Hebrew better. Here's what the NIV says, and I believe that this one is more accurate. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now here we go. Here's this translation. Until he, listen, this is so good. Until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. So in other words, there's this anticipation from all of the sons of Judah. Every person who comes, every king who comes from Judah, they're just passing down the scepter. Passing down the scepter. Giving it ahead until finally there's going to be one who's going to take it. And when he takes it, he's never going to pass it to anybody else because it will be his. And who is the one to come? Well, David came, but it wasn't David. Solomon came, but it wasn't Solomon. And see, here's, here's what we have to say about our religion. This is why Jesus comes proclaiming and says there's no other way. Because it can't be just anyone. It had to be a certain one. Search the Scriptures. Search history. If you want to, you can search other religions out if you desire. There is only one person who is the realization of our hope, and it is Jesus. Only Jesus. And the reason that no one else fits the bill of this prophecy is because this prophecy of telling of one person to rule all people for all time. No one could fulfill this prophecy except one who would be both God and King. And so when Christ comes, get this in your head, you've got to see this. This is why we shout, Hosanna, and we mean it. This is why we shout it, not just going through some motions as if it's some cold, dead religion. When we shout, Hosanna, we are expressing our praise to a King who is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now. It's not some cold, relationshipless religion. It is a living religion where we, from this vantage point, proclaim a truth to Him who reigns right now, to Him who will come and reign Again, and so when Christ comes riding on a donkey on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago, you know what He's doing? What's He doing? Why? Why can't He just walk down the streets? Why? Because He is pointing back to Genesis 49. And He is saying that I am the One. He is saying I am not only the longing of this one prophecy, He's saying I am the longing of every heart who has ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus is declaring, even as He's riding a donkey, that there is only one way, one person who can fulfill all, and it is Jesus. Listen carefully. Jesus is not just a God amongst gods. Jesus is not just one way amongst many ways. Jesus is the preeminent Son. Listen to the way that Paul describes Him. He says He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all 
things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The church is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And I think that if Paul was being honest, then he would say at the end of that wonderful Christ hymn, he would say, I wish I could describe Him to you. This is our King. This is our God who has come seeking and saving lost ones. Look at how easy He made it, but look how far people are from Him. You can't make it to God any other way except through Jesus. And if there was another way, God in His infinite love would have sent another way, but He made it real simple. I guess if we could say simple. Here He's orchestrating history many thousands of years before the event happened. We're having this prophecy in Genesis 49 where God opens the eyes of Jacob and He, he chooses Judah for whatever reason. He chooses Judah. Why is the reason? We know the reason because this is the plan of God. And how do you know it's a plan of God? Because Jesus came. That's the only reason. It's not me standing up here interpreting Scriptures. I'm just reading for you what has been done. We're looking back on this day at something that happened 2,000 years ago. And so when Jesus came riding through the streets of Jerusalem on the back of a beast of birding, He was proclaiming that He and He alone is the realization of everything that we could ever hope for. Number two. Jesus is the rescuer from our enemies. Look at verse 9. This is where it gets really good. Notice the fierceness of the language. Look at what it says. The one described in verses 8 and 9 is a warrior. Look at what it says. It says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Don't miss that. Never forget Christian that we are in the middle of a war, waging war against powers and principalities. There is a God in this world, a little g-God, a prince and ruler of the air who desires to devour you. He desires to see everything that you love in the end make nothing but a pile of ashes. So many people, maybe your neighbors, maybe your loved one, they are deceived by this God, thinking that they're living, but they are not living. There is a real enemy in this world. And so we have this picture of warfare in Genesis chapter 49 where it says that this one, the reason that we praise Him is because He has His hands on the neck of the enemy. And this means that in the fight, this is the good part, this means that in the fight, Jesus is totally in control. He has established His place. Come on, I need a volunteer. Someone, no, I'm just kidding. He has established His place of dominance. He has His hands on the neck of the enemy. Now you and I need to know something. You and I have an enemy. You and I have an enemy who is fierce. So fierce is this enemy that He has brought something into this world that everyone flees from. How many of you want to die right now? Anyone? Hopefully we have no one that is unhealthy here today. And I don't say that despairingly. 
we understand that when someone desires to die, that's not healthy. It's unhealthy. This enemy is so fierce that he has brought something that we all flee into the world. He has brought death. The Bible says this of our enemy. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But then look at this. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. You see what's happening? Here, Jesus is described as a greater lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The enemy may be a fierce enemy, but Jesus is greater. He has His hand around the neck of the enemy. As John would say, greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Get this picture. You've got to see it. Here, here, Jesus. He has His hands on that old serpent, the devil. He has conquered the devil. But listen to the Gospel. Listen to the Gospel. The way that Jesus has conquered Him. The way that Jesus had... Listen. The way that Jesus has conquered our enemy is by willingly outstretching His arms on an old rugged cross to suffer and to die for you. You see, the way that He loosened the stronghold that death had on us was by taking His hands and putting them around the neck of death. And how in the world did Jesus take His hands and put them around the neck of death? How did He do it? He outstretched His arms on a cross, subjecting Himself to death for our death so that He could taste death for everyone. This is how He did it. He loosened the stranglehold that death had on you by stretching his arms out on a cross and dying. As one church commentator would say, Cyril of Alexandria, he would say, he is the ultimate lion who has come to rescue us from a lion that was seeking to devour us. Who dares rouse him? And one time, we know, one time there was someone who did rouse him. And when that serpent roused the lion, he came on a rescue mission. Seeking and saving the lost ones. And when he came, when he was crucified, when he died on that cross, the Bible says in Colossians that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put a stranglehold on them. He disarmed them and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. How did he triumph over them? By the blood of his own cross. He is our rescuer. Number three this morning, he is the ruler of all nations. He is the ruler of the nations. And you know, the Bible could have told us to just sit in our little holy huddles and not care about the world. And could have been this religion like so many other religions that are just man-centered and you just need to feel good about yourself. And you know, the, the key to living a good life is positive thinking and all the... But it's not. It's better than that. Our claim is so much greater because I'm so glad that the Bible speaks of the universe 
universal reign of Jesus. This is not just our story. Listen carefully. This is not just the Christian story. We put our children to bed with at night. We rest our heads on at night. This is not just the Christian story. You know what you hold in your hands? You know what you confess is true? You confess that this right here is the true story of the whole world. Right here. From beginning to end. This is the true story of the whole world. And so our entire lives then in the midst of this life, and by the way, we've only got, how many years do we have? Not long. Probably less than a century. Maybe more. What's that in compared to eternity? We get to spend our entire lives figuring out how to understand this, this world. And He's given us what we need to understand the world. Everything. Right here. All of our hopes. All of our longings. What happened in the beginning. What happens in the end. And how to get to the end. Now I know some of us, like me, we'd now, Lord, tell us about what happens in between. He doesn't necessarily do those things. It's a lamp to our feet, guiding our path. But we know where the destination is. The destination is with Him. The destination is with Him. And I am so glad that the Bible speaks of the universal reign of Jesus. And there are so many, I'm afraid, and don't you be one of these, so many, that you want to just be, be silent about a king who has come. And a king who is coming. See, because of the way that the Bible is, we can't help but speak. Because here's what we know. Because we believe it. Because Jesus said it. There is coming a day when everything that we see, everything that we touch, will be covered by the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we know the way the world's going. And we can't be silent about it. Even when a terrorist group comes in just like they did this morning in Egypt and killed 37 of our brothers and sisters and wounded 100 more in Egypt, we still can't be silent. Because this is the truth of the world. There is a King who is coming. It is a King who has come. And this King, because He has come, He has filled us with His Spirit, filled us with the strength filled us with His purpose, and He sends us out into the world and He commands us to tell everyone because one day we know He is coming back. And right now, there are so many who are dwelling in darkness because the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded their eyes. But one day, one day, the obedience of all people will come to Him. Look at verse 10. I want you to notice the plural. What's it say in verse 10? To Him shall be the obedience of the people or peoples. Which one? Plural or singular? Which one? Plural. This is not a nation, but nations. The nations of the world are soon to belong to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And this poem, it's interpreted later for us in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8 when the Lord's anointed just simply has to ask and the nations will be given to Him. Or it's interpreted again this morning with ultimate fulfillment in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to what Revelation 5 says. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Listen. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, 
has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are You to take the scroll and to open its seals. For You were slain and by Your blood You ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language and people and nation. And I just wonder this morning, is this the anticipation of your heart? Are you longing for the day when Jesus will come and rule the nations? This is the Christian anticipation. This is the longing of every heart that's His because even Jesus, when He was on the earth, He taught us to pray. And how did He teach us to pray? Do you remember? He taught us to center our lives around a hope of a King who has conquered, of a King who will one day come with the clouds of heaven. And then when He comes, He will bring His kingdom on the earth. You remember how He taught us to pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the old song says, the kingdoms of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. But the poem isn't over yet. Very quickly, the poem tells us just a little bit about this kingdom. All right, Here's the king who's coming. What about this kingdom? Look at this. In the last two points that we have this morning, all go together to tell us about the kingdom. Look at the text. Notice the poetic language of verse 11 and 12. Notice how it's poetry and all of the images of verse 11 to 12 are all images that tell us two things. Number one, it tells us that Jesus is our bringer of abundance. Look at this in verse 11. It says, He's going to bind His foal to the vine and the donkey's coat to the choice vine. And when Jesus comes and takes over, when Jesus comes and establishes His reign on the earth, there will never again be a shortage of good. The opposite is true. When Jesus comes, there will never be any lack. The only thing that will be lacking is everything that is not good. That's the only thing that there won't be. Anything that's not good will not be there. And because everything that is not good will be destroyed, everything that remains will be good. And this is where hopefully it will begin to make sense to us about Palm Sunday. Look at the text. The king, when he comes in his kingdom, he's going to have no problem tying his donkey to the choicest vine there is. If any of you ever know anything about a donkey or read anything about a donkey, you know how stubborn they are. That's what they're known for. Normally, you wouldn't tie a donkey to the choicest vine. It's like me taking my children without a leash, and I don't mean that literally, me taking my children to Hobby Lobby and just turning them loose. Disaster. Especially in one section in the middle, you know, where they got all these trinkets. Don't. Stay away. We'll stay in the car while Mom goes in to Hobby Lobby. But Jesus... On this day, there will be such an abundance that it doesn't matter where he ties his donkey. Even to the choicest of all vines. So I hope from this point forward as you read this, when, when we think about Palm Sunday, when we think about Jesus coming and riding on a donkey in Jerusalem, I hope that forever God will etch in our minds Genesis 49. Because here, 
all the way in the beginning is a prophecy about a king and a donkey. And on this Palm Sunday, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the time when the king came riding on a donkey. But I wonder what happened to the donkey. We don't ever hear about the donkey again. And this passage tells us, Jesus, by coming to Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, is about to make a way for all the abundance that was provided to come about. And how does He do it? Listen carefully. How does He do it? He is going to go to death and from death come back to life. And after He comes back to life, He will promise that everyone who believes in Him, even though they die, yet shall they live. And the question that we ask down the ages is, do you believe? Are you hoping in this King who's coming? Look at how abundant things are. Look very carefully. Look at the latter half of verse 11. Look at what it says. This is poetry, remember. Wine is just as abundant as water. So much so that in everyday tasks like washing clothes, wine can be used to wash clothes. Now, some of you ladies, and you're thinking, why would you wash your clothes? White? It's poetry, just remember. It's telling us that wine is in such abundance. Where's the tide stick? Wine is in such abundance that it can be used for everyday tasks like washing water. Too good to be true? No. Not too good to be true. Just true and good. True and good. And thankfully, the last thing that we have to say this morning, number five, when Jesus comes and brings this kingdom, it is a kingdom that will never be shaken. Look at this. We've already seen Him as a lion. Now, look at verse 12. His eyes darker than wine and His teeth whiter and milk. The last reference of this poem forces us to look at the sun. And when we stare at the sun, we see His face and His smile, His teeth. And we see that He is nothing but the perfect picture of strength. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth wider than milk, we are left breathless as we realize that the kingdom that He is bringing is a kingdom that will never be shaken. No one has ever seen a God like Him, nor will there ever be a God like Him. The world is still talking about His first coming. Just imagine what's going to happen at His second. Who would dare rouse a lion who would dare mess with or try to touch or trifle his perfection. And I don't know about you, but I hope that we're here together. I am ready to spend all eternity in his kingdom. I am ready to be lost in wonder. I am ready to be lost in awe, lost in amazement as I gaze into his eyes, as I look at his smile as I realize for all eternity how great 
this salvation that He has brought to me. And not just to me, but to the whole world. To everyone who trusts in Him. Our greatest hope is in the end. And in the end, listen carefully, there will be no end. Because we will be with Him for forever. And I wonder on this Palm Sunday, as we anticipate the events of Holy Week looking ahead, is this your hope? Is this your hope? Is Jesus your hope? Do you see Palm Sunday this way as a declaration of a King who is coming to make all things new? He is coming to make all things His this morning. Let me plead with you. Is Jesus your hope? Are you longing to be with Him? Can you honestly say before God that no one satisfies your heart like Jesus? Oh, listen. Far from one solitary event that happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, this King who came riding fulfilling Scripture is the King who will go all the way willingly to the cross is the King who will go willingly into a grave, is a King who will willingly and by His own power be resurrected and is a King today who calls you to hope in Him, who calls you to believe in Him. Would you pray with me today? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for our realized hope. We thank You that You are the rescuer for our souls from our enemy. Thank You, Lord God, that You have come to rule the nations. That You have brought us peace and abundance. And Father, thank You that when we come to You, there's no doubt that Your reign will be a forever reign. So Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know You, may today be the day that they cry out to You and say that they believe, maybe for the first time. As they learn, Lord God, as we learn together with them what it means to hope in Jesus forever. And maybe today they've been wandering so far from You and they've heard Your voice today saying, come home. Believe. Hope. Give them the strength that they need to respond to You. Father, we love You. And we thank You for the week as it unfolds. The Holy Week. Be with this church as we come every night to celebrate. Be with our speakers. Father, help us to learn this week, this week, to love You more than we ever have before. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.